Welcome to Asia New Horizons, where law enforcement practitioners and academics get together to share knowledge and ideas to shape the future of crime analysis. Thanks for having me. I'm Joel Kaplan, professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University and director of the Rutgers Center on Public Security. And you have your hat on, as you just pointed out to me, and you're uh, flying the flag, which is uh, great from where you're where you're working at the moment. Great to have you. And I know when the listeners um, tune into this, I think they're all going to be surprised that I finally was able to, to get you on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. The first question I have to ask you is, let's talk about your experiences in the field. What was it like? What were the gaps? And how did you find your area that you seem to go on TED Talks and talk about and the work that you're doing and going to be doing in the future? I've had a lot of fun over the years. I've been in public safety and public service almost all of my life. I actually found an old photo of me, you know, sitting behind the ambulance uh, passenger seat before I was even able to drive. I volunteered on an ambulance. But I've worked as a police officer. I've worked as emergency dispatcher. I've worked on an ambulance. I've been an EMT. And, you know, I've just enjoyed giving back to the community in a way that helps to provide better public safety and standard of living for people in the communities, uh, whether they're residents or tourists. And it's fun, which makes it easier. But um, I don't think anything that I'm doing now is much different than that. It is a different hat, literally and figuratively. But academia, when you can make it actionable and uh, involve community partners in actionable research, it's all one and the same. How did you find sort of grasping the attention from uh, practitioners on board with the work you're doing? Was that a difficult journey for you? And I ask, I guess on my, on my personal journey, you know, sometimes I find it quite difficult to get people to listen, you know, senior officials to listen to what I'm trying to do. What was that like for you? It's not easy, especially being in academia without anybody knowing that you have kind of a practical or professional background mm-hmm. in the area that you're working there's a sense of needing to convey that in order to gain some credibility. But at the same time, why do you always need to? Uh, If you have information or project or program that you can partner on that has mutual benefits, you know, kind of in the here and now, why can't we focus on that? And so there's this kind of tug of war between having kind of validate who you were in order to be heard Uh, in the moment. I remember several instances where I'll go into a meeting with a police agency or a police partner and we'll be waiting for the commander or the deputy chief or chief to show up. And they'll usually show up late to make us wait. And when they get there, they sit in their chair and they'll lean back in the chair and their arms will be crossed and they'll maybe be giving you full attention, maybe not. And they'll say, okay, let's, you know, let's get started. What do you have for me? And, And it usually begins with, why are you telling me what I already know? I've been doing this for 30 years. And the conversation begins like that. And sometimes the conversations end there because it's intimidating. They're right. They have a lot more experience than you do uh, in the moment. You know, I've learned to take that background and that cynicism and turn it into a conversation that leads to, you know, something that demonstrates there's mutual benefit. If you've been doing this for 30 years, you've been doing things that you think are successful. I'm sure many of them have been. Why are the crime problems in the same places today as they were 30 years ago? And what can we do to replicate your past successes? And what can we learn from the things that didn't work? And if you know where they are, why don't we just start talking about why they're there and why they persist for so long? And that changes the conversation to one where they begin to lean up from their chairs and uncross their arms and put their elbows on the table. And we can kind of have a conversation. 
That's so interesting. I feel motivated. I have such a long day today, Joel, but I feel really motivated to now go out and reach, reach out to these people. But it's so true. You just see the differences of when you actually do get their attention to perhaps how sceptical they are at the, first, at the beginning of you uh, introducing yourself to them. Okay, this is a question I usually ask towards the end, but you're on a roll and I'm not going to stop it. What's your best advice for someone that's just started out in law enforcement? And actually, for those that are still in law enforcement and having so many challenges that they face on a daily basis, what is your advice to these individuals? You know, that's a tough one because, you know, policing in one jurisdiction is not the same as another. And we think of policing as a uniform occupation, but it's a profession that adapts and adopts uh, different practices and fits within different contexts. And so, you know, advice for one police practitioner in one country or city or region may not be the best advice for another. Looking back at my time in law enforcement and having worked with a lot of police officers more recently from new recruits to senior officials, one of the themes that kind of crosses all of those is the finding a role for yourself within a police agency that connects the work you do with the benefits the community sees can have lasting benefits and rewards for the individual as well as the agency. And sometimes we sort of like to fit in the mold of what we think policing should be. And we don't want to take the risk to stand out and be the oddball, which is a reasonable feeling. But the ones who do stand out because they're innovating and trying something new and willing to fail uh, in, in many ways are the ones that also have pretty successful careers and change the face of policing within their jurisdiction nationally and internationally. Just look at these you know, associations of evidence-based policing and various other professional organizations. The officers who stand out today are the ones who are willing to stand out early in their careers. And they connected the work they did to the benefits the community received that they were serving and protecting. And it was less of an individual, I'm going to show up, survive my shift and go home. Mm-hmm. to I'm going to show up, try to do something that powers the community to do something they want to do safely or more securely. And they kind of are able to articulate what their role was mm-hmm. in the community's uh, betterment. Absolutely. You know, as well as I and many others, there are so many gaps within this field where attitude may not be respected or seen in a positive way where analysts and other police personnel can actually go in and try and do something different because perhaps there's no appetite for that. Perhaps they just want staff, they meaning chief officers just want their staff to come in, do their nine to five, show them the gaps in the analysis, show them, you know, provide that presentation so they can action on the intelligence. So I just wonder, Joel, the gaps that you've seen in the past, that's all well and good. But have you been in a situation or seen or heard stories where that's not accepted within law enforcement? So a bit of research I'm doing at the moment, my PhD research, we talk about the relationship between analysts, police personnel and chief officers. And I keep seeing the same thing of, well, we're not able to do that because we don't have the resources. We can't provide that attitude because if we say that we're a problem. So we just go in and we provide the PowerPoints, we show them what they need to do and they do it. And the attitude that you're referring to, you know, be different, be sort of that person that goes, thinks blue skies all the time. But has there been any gaps that you've seen that you think that's not going to work? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that we don't want to take risks on. We don't want to take risks on safety. We don't want to take risks on security. We don't want to take risks, you know, wasting budgets and money and financial resources. Uh, we also don't want to take risks that could jeopardize reputation. And that's a big one because when we innovate, we risk being wrong. And there's an organization in the U.S. that talks about failing forward. And it's an interesting idea, but, you know, police agencies don't always have the freedom to fail forward because any failure can be taken out of proportion and can be contextualized in a way that just has ripple effects. And so maintaining the status quo is a very easy thing to do within policing. But I think kind of the one way in which to innovate or to kind of identify the gaps that we described that we discussed earlier and kind of empowering some levels of creativity within a police organization is to tap into the individual strengths of officers within the department. And I understand that police agencies are hierarchical structures with different chains of command, and that often benefits and strengths to that, particularly in crisis situations. But when we limit the ability of new ideas because of where where the individual is in that hierarchy, we are harming the profession as a whole in some ways. It's the young, idealistic, innovative recruits who might have some excellent ideas, but if we're not, we don't allow ourselves to hear them or implement them because they're not yet senior executives. Uh, We can be missing an important piece to what our profession can do in a better way or in a slightly different way that affects a greater number of people more positively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And sometimes losing those individuals to go off to other agencies that perhaps respect those thoughts and those, the forward thinkers that we see within law enforcement. There's one word there that's important, that was risk. Let's talk about the risk train modelling. This is something you are so passionate about. And if you can, Joel, just speak in lay terms. Talk to me as if I don't know what it is. Sure. Uh, Well, risk train modelling was developed at Rutgers almost now 14 years ago. Wow. Uh, Time really flies. What it is, it's an analytic technique. It's a crime analysis technique. And it connects features of the environment with crime incident location patterns and identify settings where crime is more or less likely to occur. And the way we think about it is as a diagnostic tool. That is, it can diagnose crime patterns or diagnose crime hotspots, but it can also diagnose crime cold spots to see what it is about certain places where crime is less likely to occur more often than not. And the patterns don't even have to cluster at all. We can have you know a variety of different patterns or incident locations that might appear random, But the pattern when analyzed with RTM suggests that the settings in which they occur have common denominators across all those settings, even though they're not yet clustering. And so RTM is this analytic technique that connects environmental features with crime incident locations. And the results are used by a variety of stakeholders to figure out where to go, prioritizing certain places for deployment, and what to focus on when they get there beyond simply the people that are located there at any given moment in time. Why was this developed? Was there a gap within the analytical world that you thought this is needed? When does, do all forces use it from where you are based currently or is it only a collective view? It's used in almost every continent. I don't yet know about Antarctica, 
but uh, for all I know, it is and word just doesn't travel as fast. But as far as I know, it's used in most of the continents around the world and by a growing number of law enforcement agencies around the world. But it's also used by non-law enforcement agencies, community organizations, nonprofit organizations, cities, uh, hospital-based violence prevention programs, and a variety of other stakeholders. Well, it was developed for a number of reasons, but one of them was this idea that we have just so much data and we have a lot of traditional crime data, you know, the incident locations that are collected by police. But we also have a lot of other data, business and retail infrastructure, physical and structural elements of the landscape. And on top of all of that, we have research evidence from decades of research that connects certain features of the environment with certain crime incident locations. I mean, just think back to the environmental backcloth and the Branninghams. And the idea of environmental criminology and crime pattern theory. And we've got theory, we have research, we have different pieces of research that have built from one another over the years. And at the outset, we began to ask, how do we bring all of these insights together in one place and learn from all of them in a way that synthesizes key pieces of that information? And the answer was geography, that the common denominator for disparate data sets could be a common geography. And when you layer these different pieces of information on top of one another, you can gain new and useful insights that you didn't otherwise have when you looked at each of them or considered each of them in isolation. And so risk train modeling was built from essentially a problem that needed a solution, which is how do we bring different and disparate data sets together that are arguably disconnected in a way that connects them in meaningful ways? And so RTM was the analytic technique that allowed for layering this information with relative and meaningful weights to produce actionable information. And that's really where the RTM analysis came from. And it grew into different forms of practice and application from risk-based policing to data-informed community engagement and a whole host of other uh, programs and strategies for crime prevention. So interesting. And it happens within the analytical sphere of things, which is also very good. What are the responses to RTM by by everyone within law enforcement and non-law enforcement agencies? You know, what I find so fascinating is we have been talking about the principles of RTM for decades. I already mentioned, you know, the environmental backcloth and crime pattern theory and ideas of how we utilize spaces and are influenced by our perceptions of safety or risk in certain locations. And, you know, when our hairs go up on our arms in certain locations, we we sense things, but we don't necessarily have the ability to articulate them consistently through analytics time and time again. We also have, you know, as academics and as practitioners in policing and other fields, we have a vision for what public safety should be, whether it's problem-oriented or data-informed or intelligence-led. We see that there is something better that could be done that is more sustainable, long-lasting, and impactful that sort of shares the burden for crime prevention beyond simply a police-only or law enforcement-only response. And I think the reaction to RTM kind of fits into that in that it sort of empowers visions for what crime prevention and public safety could be that have been around for quite some time, but it becomes this analytic tool that sort of enables the application of those ideas in practice. And that's why it's really exciting to see because this technique, this crime analysis technique sort of empowered multiple stakeholders and practitioners to do what they've wanted to do for quite some time. And now they have 
the analytic technique that justifies their decisions. So it's no longer risky, as we talked about earlier, to innovate or be creative. Yeah. Rather, the data and the analytics now validate their ideas and allow them to be implemented in ways that previously might not have been as readily tolerable. Do you know what's outstanding for me, they're just listening to you speak, that gap within law enforcement is the lack of skills that can be translated into other units and places within um, law enforcement. But it seems to me that these skills are so transferable, you're seeing the same results in different agencies, and that's spectacular. That's something that doesn't come easily. So that's really interesting, interesting to me. And it brings me on to my next question. Is RTM meant to be a standardized process that we operate within law enforcement? Or is there room for adopting different ways to conduct the exercise? So risk train modeling as an analytic technique is relatively straightforward in terms of the, the steps of analyzing data and getting the results. But RTM as a program of crime prevention or public safety, when adopted by a practitioner or a particular stakeholder, is a process that could be adapted to that particular jurisdiction. But the process becomes the standard application. Yes. The, the, the use of RTM to analyze crime problems to involve the human element in that process, both before the analysis and after the analysis to turn the results into what we call risk narratives, which connects the results to lived experiences and offers a context for what would otherwise be raw data. And it's the process of applying risk train modeling as an analytic technique into a way of delivering public safety. And that is standard. But the way in which different agencies adopt it is not necessarily standard. Sometimes they keep that process within a law enforcement agency and only utilize law enforcement resources to deploy to priority areas. Sometimes they involve other stakeholders or other community partners and share the results with those partners to allow them to do what they do best, the places that need them most. Sometimes the process for applying risk train modeling is used outside of a police agency. And the organization that spearheads the application of RTM and the process for interpreting those results and deploying resources, that organization becomes the hub of the wheel and police are invited to be one of the spokes among many other partners in the community. And so while the process could be the same, the way in which it's applied in different jurisdictions does differ and it can grow in scale as that jurisdiction is ready to expand it or to make it more of an institutional program rather than just a, a pilot or a test. And so we see it begin small in many places and then grow into a larger program that kind of becomes ingrained within the larger agency or community that they're serving. Oh, wow. Okay, right. A couple of differences here that I guess I can sort of identify between you versus uh, where you're from versus sort of the UK, which is very interesting. You touched on community partners. How does that work? And is it effective? What are the challenges that may come out of this? Or does it, as you said, help grow what you see in terms of the outcome? When we talk about risk train modeling as an analytic technique, we connect it with the idea of diagnosing crime patterns. If you go to your doctor because you've had headaches for the past three days, and the only thing your doctor tells you is, well, you've had headaches for the past three days, you're probably going to have a headache tomorrow. 
nice seeing you, you'd be pretty upset because Mm -hmm. that doesn't solve your problem. It just predicts that you're going to continue having it tomorrow. Instead, we want our doctor to diagnose why we're having the headaches and prescribe a solution that helps us prevent them and stop them from occurring. And so we want two things. We want to suppress the problems in the short term and we want to prevent them over the long term. Risk tray modeling as an analytic technique gives us the ability to do that. It diagnoses crime patterns so that we can deploy resources to high-risk locations, but also it gives us the ability to identify other stakeholders within the community that can address some of the factors that are contributing to these problems. One of the ways that I, uh, one metaphor that I use is prism. If you have a glass prism, when light shines through it, it breaks that light into its component colors and you see a rainbow. When you analyze a problem with risk train modeling, it breaks that problem up into its component parts so that you can come up with a multifaceted intervention strategy. One of the approaches to solving those crime problems is by deploying resources as one of those elements of that crime prevention strategy. But there's other stakeholders that can be involved. The public works department can fix streetlights in high-risk locations or prioritize the demolition of vacant lots. Nonprofit organizations might be focusing on building community gardens or remediating housing to make it more affordable, owner-occupied, renovated housing. They could prioritize their site suitability analyses for those things that they're already doing in places that are also going to have an impact on public safety and crime prevention in the same spaces. And so while the public works department is focusing on streetlights in some areas and the nonprofit organization is focused on community gardens in another location and police are deploying resources to do directed patrols, but they're getting out of their cars and they're doing business checks with the business owners of stores that are overly affected by these locations. We begin to develop this intervention strategy that's informed by data, but that embraces multiple stakeholders in addressing the issue in a way that allows each of them to do what they do best in the places that need the most. And while it might appear like they're all operating independently, They're all informed by the same data. And so it becomes this comprehensive intervention strategy where everybody has equal access to the data and the analytics, but they use it in line with their particular or unique missions and goals within their agencies. And it allows everybody to do what they do best at the places that need it most. And we have evidence to show it works. We call it data-informed community engagement or DICE. And it is an effective strategy that is now being replicated in the U.S. and in some places overseas. Uh, We've received funding to test it and continue to evaluate the impacts. But as a crime prevention and public safety program, it's not only effective at reducing crime, but it's also meets community expectations and kind of utilizes multiple stakeholders in that process. um, And everybody can share the credit at the same time. Again, don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but how do you ensure, it just came to my mind, how do you ensure that you're all working off the same data? How, How is that possible? Because again, that is a massive challenge within law enforcement. It is. One of the other challenges is the data that we often use to define problems, analyze problems, and inform solutions are contained within police agencies. And so what risk-trained modeling allows for is wherever it begins to be used, whether it's within a police agency or outside of a police agency, it identifies multiple factors that are contributing to the crime problem so that the solution 
is broadened. And instead of siloed within the agency that it's analyzed, the silos are kind of turned on their side. And there's a much more horizontal approach to, uh, you know, in a kind of a holistic approach to crime prevention because multiple stakeholders are identified as being important in contributing to the intervention programming. And so we often find that data analysis, skills necessary for analyzing data, and technology and software that's made accessible for doing it are contained within the agencies that get the funding to do crime prevention, which is often a police agency. You got to take those tools and resources outside of the agency and make them accessible to a variety of different stakeholders. And it's not just making data available. You also need the analytics. Yeah. It's not just having town hall meetings. It's not just having CompStat meetings. It's a combination of all of these things in a particular way that allows for meaningful impacts. And that's that's what we've learned, that there's kind of a, an important set of steps that make the process effective and sustainable. And when implemented, risk terrain modeling becomes risk-based policing or data-informed community engagement, which allows for not just data sharing, but consensus building about what the problem is and who can be involved in the solution. My mind is blown. <laughs> if people can see my face, I'm just nodding at just everything you're saying because this is this is so effective, so effective in terms of the result and how you actually get there. There is no no missing anyone out, and I guess the communication is always there. Again, a massive factor in in analysis. You have to communicate. Um, okay. What do you suggest moving forward? What, what I know you said you have funding, and I'm, I'm sure you mentioned DICE. I'm sure you've got more work to come out of this and more research, but what do you think everybody that's listening needs to do going forward? When we talk about analytics, especially with regard to crime prevention, because crime prevention is so closely tied with policing, we often think of predictive analytics. And we, we want to, we always want to be in the right place at the right time to prevent harm and to catch the bad guys. But one of the things that we need to do is not just diagnose crime problems and understand crime patterns, not just in terms of where they're occurring, but why they occur there for so long, time and time again. But we need to kind of shift the conversation from policing and law enforcement to crime prevention. Because when we talk about crime prevention and public safety, it doesn't always have to rely primarily on policing and law enforcement. And so when we have conversations about crime problems and crime prevention, police can be one part of the solution and law enforcement is one part of policing. In fact, most of the things police do are not actually you know, writing tickets or arresting people or chasing down suspects. It's, you know, boring stuff. And so policing is not always law enforcement, but policing and law enforcement is not always everything we need to be doing in order to achieve successful and long-term crime prevention and public safety. And so I would suggest that moving forward, change the conversation from policing to public safety and realize the role that police and law enforcement can play within the broader context of crime prevention within our mission for public safety. Well, you heard it here first. This is what uh, Joel wants to see. 
And I'm sure we're going to be hearing more from you about this, this model. And actually, when I next speak with some for, uh, law enforcement agencies, just with my staff, I actually might ask, I might just tap into our RTM and just see how they're finding it. Because this is so interesting. And actually, maybe I'm being silly here, but I've actually never, I've never heard anything about this or read anything, really. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong areas. And you're right, maybe the conversations need to change. We need to shift the roles, I think, in terms of what we see as crime prevention, because it's much more than policing. It goes beyond that. Joel, absolutely amazing to have you on our podcast. I could talk to you for hours, but I understand you are very busy. And just thank you. And I'm sure our listeners are going to be really excited to hear from you. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. You're too kind. Thank you very much. No, you're welcome.